Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. Happy summer. I brought my friend Annette Altman's back. You guys loved her so much before. Um, I got so much feedback from our last episode together. So I brought Annette back on. Um, and today we're going to be sort of dissecting the differences between, you know, narcissist, abuser, sociopath, <laughs> all those things. Um, and I want you to stay and listen. Make sure you listen through to the end of this episode because at the end, um, Annette and I talk about a, a program, a class that she has coming up on uh, August 15th that I think you guys are going to want to hear about. So stay tuned for that so that you can get the details on that class. And um, just a little FYI and heads up. So I am taking July and August off from all of my coaching so that I can write my book. I think I told you that. Did I tell you guys that? Uh, yep. So I am deep in book writing mode right now. And when I come back, I'm going to be doing things a little bit differently. And so I wanted to kind of um, drop a little information uh, here today about how things are going to look when I get back. Um, what I have found is that taking on the number of private clients that uh, I have, uh, that I have had, has become a little bit overwhelming. And it's, and, and then there are, you know, still more people that I can't take on because there's only so much time in a day. There's only one of me. <laughs> there's only so much um, really, truly psychological energy um, that I can uh, hold, you know, and give because what I do and the topics that my private clients are dealing with are really heavy and deep and hard. So I have been looking at how can I better organize my business and my practice so that I can help more people, but not take on more <laughs> energy and time, um, if that makes sense. And so I'm going to be doing a group program and I'm really excited about this. You guys, it's going to be a small group. It's not going to be anything overwhelming and major. It's going to be limited, but it is going to be deep and robust. It's basically going to take everything that I do with my private clients and then add in the factor of community and uh, women holding each other in their process. Um, for those of you who are in my Facebook group, you know the power of community. And this program will be <laughs> that like times a million, right? It's going to, because it's going to be, the, it, I'm capping it at 20 uh, participants. 
And then if, if more people want to join it, I will open up a second cohort. Uh, that is absolutely fine. And, and we'll do it that way. But, um, you know, 20 people holding space for each other and women in community and the, you know, the power of that. When I've run group programs in the past, I can't even tell you guys. Um, and I'll probably get, I have some testimonials from women who were in my group programs in the past. And they said, you know, one of the biggest factors besides the work that we did was having all these other women sort of, you know, there's accountability, there's compassion, there's understanding, there's cheerleading. I mean, there's just so much in that. But anyway, so I just wanted to let you know, um, if you go, if you're interested, if you're like, holy shit, I want to do this. If you go to my private coaching uh, website page. So if you go to kateanthony.com and then click on the button that says private coaching, and then you'll see that it says, I'm not taking clients anymore, but if you want to be in, or, you know, for a while, and I'm, if you want to be notified, click here. If you put your information there, you will be, um, in the first round of people to be notified when that program opens up. So kateanthony.com private coaching put your name on the wait list for private coaching and you will get information first about this group program. So, all right. With all of that said, um, Annette Altmans, she is a philanthropist and passionate human rights advocate. And Annette's personal experiences of prolonged emotional abuse in her marriage and her extensive journey of recovery, including comprehensive field research into the topics of original abuse and double abuse, ignited her passion to founding The MEND Project in 2016. So uh, The MEND Project is one of my uh, favorite organizations, and I am thrilled to welcome Annette Altman's back on the podcast. Annette, thank you so much for coming back on to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. I am excited to have this conversation with you, breaking down the differences. What are the differences between an abuser, a narcissist, a sociopath, all of the things? Well, it, Kate, thank you for having me back on. I'm excited to be here. And it's, it's I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So just, you know, uh, behind the scenes, sort of to let people in on uh, how this came to be, I was actually going to be recording a solo episode on this exact thing. And then Annette and I were on the phone yesterday or on Zoom yesterday, and we started talking about it. And I was like, I don't want to do it on a solo, a solo episode. I want, <laughs> I want to have this conversation with you. So thank you for joining me last minute and uh, making this making this happen. Because I, I just, I, I love your wealth of knowledge and experience with this. What is the difference? And does it matter? Okay, that is a great question. I personally um, think that when we get into trying to understand sociopath versus narcissist versus is it just abusive bad habits that they're capable of changing, I think it's more important to just look at the behaviors because we get sort of stuck in these labels. And what happens very often is that then victims or survivors, they they take on this role as trying to help their spouse not be a narcissist or not be a sociopath. And it's really not, um, it's, it's not helpful to spend so much energy on that as it is 
to confront the specific behaviors and um, set boundaries and look at um, look at their ability or their willingness to change. And if it isn't there, that's really the information that you need to then help you make um, future decisions on. Um, so you're not really being lost in the psycho babble of narcissism, you know, because there's a full spectrum and narcissism on the far spectrum is sociopathy. And we all have a little bit of narcissism in us. And so I think it's more important to recognize, can I deal with this? Um, How entrenched is this person? And how is it affecting me? Right. You know, what's interesting is uh, there was a, there was a TikTok recently that I, that I did a duet on, which said, there's a difference between how you feel about someone and how they make you feel. Mm. And I just thought it was so brilliant. It was so simple. Right. But, you know, we say like, well, but I love him or I, you know, and then, but they make me feel so bad all the time. Right. And it's important to actually look at how people make us feel more than what's their diagnosis, what, right? Because as you said, so often the reason we want to find the label is so that we can change them. Yep. No, it's a, I love that um, little mantra that you found on TikTok. Most victim survivors are empaths um, and they have a great ability to show compassion to their spouse, but it's to their own detriment in the long run because they just get worn down, they're over-functioning and they're carrying on all, they're carrying all the responsibility in the relationship. And that's, you know, codependency. And there's wonderful aspects to codependency that makes us, you know, caring, kind, um, helpful individuals, but there needs to be autonomy. There needs to be mutual self-responsibility in a relationship. And a narcissist is not going to take responsibility and they're not willing to be held accountable. And so it just erases the victim's sense of self, their individuality, and they find that they are just so broken down, they no longer have a voice. And obviously that's not healthy. It's very traumatic. And, you know, the flip side to that is that the victim, and I I was there once, we take on so much trauma in this experience that we aren't able to be good for ourselves. We react and we're not able to be our best self for our kids. So it's really times, I mean, it could be helpful if you take a moment to to help you understand, but I prefer Um, We have terms and definitions on the MEND Project website that really, I I encourage your listeners to uh, become familiar with those terms, print it out. It's downloadable for free in PDF fashion. And if they really take the time once or twice a day to look at those behaviors, they can then see how many of them, and usually there are many that are being employed against them. It's really the narcissist's desire to uh, thwart 
a healthy conversation or stonewall a healthy conversation because they're so defensive. They're so invested in controlling the outcome of conversations that they don't ever really engage in mutuality, mutual understanding, mutual compassion, mutual respect. Right. And they don't necessarily an abuser. I don't know about a narcissist per se, but certainly an abuser is not interested in solving the problem, right? So when we get into a conversation with an abuser, you and I, the empath um, or the codependent or just the kind of normal person gets into the conversation with an objective to solve the problem, right? To come to an agreement, to compromise, right? But the abuser comes to the discussion to dominate and control. Right. And they might not be fully aware in the moment. This is not an excuse right? uh, because it is their go-to position there. I like to say they have an entirely different worldview. They're, they're operating from an entirely different playbook than what healthy, and if you want to use the word normal, looks like. There's nothing healthy about their approach. And once we can accept that they are operating from an entirely different place, they aren't relating to us in any way that can produce health and um, solutions to the conversation, um, it's really just a dead end. I Um, It's not on our website, but we use it in our trainings. Um, We have this image that we call the maze of confusion. And brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. The maze basically represents a conversation. And if you think if you're walking through a maze, there's a myriad of dead ends. And that's what it's like to be in a conversation with an abuser. And, And I like to say that Um, All narcissists are abusers, but not all abusers are narcissists. And we can unpack that in a little bit. But I just, in the maze, um, every dead end is represented by a covert, emotionally abusive behavior, or it could be overt as well, but it's to stop the conversation, to derail the conversation, to redirect the conversation so that the victim is not heard. They're their concerns, their critiques, their criticisms. And yes, we are allowed to criticize. We are allowed to raise critiques and concerns if it's going to be helpful to the relationship. They, those ideas, those thoughts, those concerns are just shut down. And the victim is overcome with, is so confused by all of these different stonewalling tactics that they have a hard time recognizing the pattern that's playing out. They, if like, if, if a person just lied regularly, and I don't mean just, but if they lied regularly, the victim would be able to say, my partner lies and I can't trust my partner. But if there's lying and blame shifting and deflection and minimization and so on, it becomes too confusing in the conversation for the victim to be able to pull out the patterns. They just are overwhelmed with this feeling, this traumatic experience. Right. And they can't point to one thing. This is why it's so, I I love the maze of confusion. Um, Maybe we'll put it in the show notes um, if that's okay with you. Yeah. I I have it so I can, right. Cause it's, it's so brilliant because it is, it's like, 
you can't say, well, it's this, he does this. Like you said, he lies, he, this, he, that it's not concrete because it's ever shifting and mm-hmm. it's shifting to keep you confused. That's the point. So you can't point to one thing and be like, well, he does this one thing that hurts me consistently. It's he does all these things and I can't quite label them and I don't understand, but I, but I don't feel good. Right. And um, it's important that victims understand what they're feeling because they might have identified one behavior, but there's usually many more behaviors that they're not able to identify. So it's, I just, again, want to say really familiarize yourself with the terms and definitions for your own well-being, not to confront the abuser, but to really be able to unpack what your experience is. Because we say at the Men Project that clarity is the first necessary step to healing. You can't solve problems if you can't advocate for yourself, for example, like with a therapist. If you can't describe what you're going through, you're going to waste so many sessions Um trying to describe crazy making behaviors. But if you have the terms and definitions, not only do you have something in writing that's concrete, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. the fact that you have something in writing is actually influential towards the person you're trying to um, advocate yourself for, or that you want their advocacy for you. Yes, yes, yes. Those terms and definitions are really invaluable. So I really encourage everyone to head into the show notes and download them because they are, they really are, they're concrete. They're the concrete thing that you're looking for mm-hmm. <laughs> to be able to say, oh, and it's two pages. Like it's two pages of very bite-sized and, and concise definitions. Yes, and there are probably more behaviors that we don't have included, sure. but at least by looking at these, it sets you on the track to be able to to um, analyze your own situation and maybe identify more. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back to what you said a little while ago, which is um, that uh, all narcissists are abusers, but not all abusers are narcissists. Mm -hmm. So let's talk more about that. Okay. Well, so a narcissist, we all, probably know is someone that um, doesn't take responsibility. Um, They are very defensive. They look at their spouse as an extension of themselves. So um, that might sound confusing, but basically you might step right and they thought you should have stepped left. So they're displeased or um, you you raise a concern and they say, you're attacking me. It's Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. All these tactics to blame the victim, but an abuser, not all abusers are narcissists. Abusers can be people who have learned bad habits in their upbringing. Um, and when we confront an abuser who's not a narcissist, many of them are are able and willing to manage their own defenses you know, they, they can, they have better coping skills so they can say, gosh, I didn't realize I was doing that. And I can see how harmful that is. I am going to stop that right now. If you, especially if you use the terms and definitions to identify you're blame shifting me, you're minimizing me. You give them something concrete 
to go on. I mean, if I can, I'd like to tell you a little story about myself. I didn't realize I was minimizing my, that I, I, my children are nine years apart. So my daughter was first. I minim, I wanted her to be empathic. So I focused so much more on empathy than I did on self-empowerment and to a serious detriment. It really, and she is so empathic and um, has a harder time setting boundaries. And that I fully blame myself for because of the, how I minimized her concerns and said, well, think about how the other person is feeling. And as soon as I read about minimization, I just, I immediately said, oh my gosh, I have done this so wrong. I need to have more conversations with her. I need to apologize. I need to really speak into her about how wrong it was and why it was wrong. And I've done that from a wellspring inside myself. And that's what a healthy person will do who has bad habits like that. They'll say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize, and I don't want to do that anymore. I need to correct this. Yeah. Um, and it's not challenging. You don't, but with a narcissist, they're, they might stop minimizing you, but they're going to shift over to another toxic, you know, covert behavior and employ that to, to, to try to just deter you from finding them out. Um, so they'll just right. shift, like I said. Yeah, right. So you were able to identify the behavior and then you stop the behavior, whereas an abuser will, a toxic abuser or narcissist will identify the, will have the behavior identified for them or whatever, and then they'll just employ another one. Yep. (laughs) And 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 so it's very confusing for the Mm -hmm. victim on that end because the victim may not be aware of other behaviors unless they're really um, familiar with the terms and definite, you know, with these other covert behaviors, they feel sideswiped and they, they are possibly being gaslighted and they don't even know it. They just feel a sense inside of themselves that they are losing themselves. Right. And, and this is where, this is where the, uh, well, I did what you asked. Nothing I ever do is good enough. Oh yeah. Happens. Right. Because I can't well, make you happy. I can't make you happy. Right. Because they did. Actually, did what you asked, <laughs> right? But then they just started doing something else. Yeah, they start blame shifting you. I can't make you happy. It just moves on to something else. And now for a quick word from our sponsor, the all-new, fully revised Should I Stay or Should I Go? After three years of this program existing in the world and changing women's lives, I decided to give it a full makeover. The all-new version has all-new videos, a podcast-like audio stream if you want to take the work on the go, and completely updated resources for deepening your learning. The program consists of six core modules, the first of which is Who Are You? This is the section in which you dig deeply into your own personal development and get in touch with your inner guide, slay your inner critics, mine for values, and learn how to set healthy boundaries. The second module is how you learn to love and helps you understand your attachment style, love languages, and how to properly love and care for the most important person in all of this, yourself. Module three is called, Why Are Women So Exhausted? And breaks down some of the issues around toxic masculinity and male entitlement, the myth of being a stay-at-home mom, and answers the question, 
He's fine. Why can't I just be happy? Module 4 is all about understanding abuse and includes videos on trauma bonds, understanding the cycles of abuse, particularly how they play out in your own relationship, and addresses addiction, infidelity, and mental illness. Module 5 is all about healing and moving forward and includes videos about therapy, couples therapy, healing from betrayal, emotional regulation, and grief. This section also includes my 90-minute workshop, Tackling Codependence, as well as my signature relationship inventory that will help you gain complete clarity on all the parts of your marriage and figure out what's his and what's yours. And Module 6 answers the question, is the grass really greener on the other side? With in-depth videos on dating, cultural and religious isolation, and what happens if you end up alone forever? Spoiler, you probably won't. Whether you decide to stay or go, this program will set you up for a lifetime of clarity and fulfillment. And if you've already decided to go, the program will help you unpack all that's happened and help you heal so that you can move forward without repeating the same mistakes that got you here in the first place. This program is priced super low at just $697. And if you use the code PODCAST, when you check out, you'll get $50 off the full price. What are you waiting for? You have been agonizing with this decision for long enough. It's time to finally know, should you stay or should you go? And now back to our episode. What is the difference in the mindset of an abuser versus a narcissist slash sociopath? You know, where, you know, like, where do these fall, like from their own mindset and then our experiences of them? Well, um, I like to, we have a tool um, on our website that we call the pillars of abuse. And I like to use that because it basically identifies why they are an entirely different mindset or not why, but what they are thinking Mm -hmm. differently than what you're thinking. The first is a faulty belief system. And this is like their moralistic judgments based on ignorance, or you might say limited knowledge, or it could be based on their family system or their social biases um, that, that basically cause oppression of others. Like racism would be a faulty belief system. Patriarchy Mm -hmm. would be a faulty belief system, Um, things of that nature, or in different cultures uh, where the male is the dominating force the woman is minimized. The woman is expected to do the lion's share of the work. Even if she's working a full-time job, she's expected to cook and clean up and give the kids a bath and that that sort of thing. And so that is just an example of Mm -hmm. a couple of faulty belief systems. The next um, pillar of abuse is entitlement. Um, There's an expectation by the narcissist of preferential treatment. Uh, They are better than you. They are in control. They want to have control. And so they expect preferential treatment. They expect double standards where what applies, the rules that apply to the victim don't apply to them. Like um, I can go buy a car, but you can't go buy a dress or Mm -hmm. a myriad of 
of other examples, um, or they want rewards. They want re- rewards regardless of merit or the other's needs or well-being. So uh, I can remember when I was in the middle of my abusive relationship, and some might say, well, this doesn't really seem abusive, but he would take time out to go golfing frequently, but I never had his undivided attention. And so a lot of people like to do their physical activities and that's great. And I loved for him to enjoy other aspects of his life, but not at the expense of having quality time. And so, right. I hear this, by the way, I hear this all the time from women, all the time, (laughs) all the time. He works all day and then he goes golfing all weekend and I never see him and I'm left with all of the work all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Right. The other um, pillar of abuse is image management. And this really is a clue to narcissism because they want to protect their own image at all costs. They want to uphold their social status and, and the norms that they, they don't want to be found out. Um, they will undermine the uh, um, the victim or others if their image is threatened in any way. Mm-hmm. So they can be the most charming, successful, even philanthropic, but their motive often for being this way is so that their image is perceived as better than what they truly are behind closed doors. And so image management drives uh, there it, it's a motive for a lot of what they do. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I remember with, you know, with my ex, you know, it was like, he could treat me however he wanted to, as long as nobody found out about it. And then if someone found out about it, he was like, well, did you tell them? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, well, they saw it. And yes, I do talk to my friends about it because I'm confused and I'm upset and I'm sad, but like, it wasn't, the problem wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm hurting you. I'm so sorry. The problem was that I told other people. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and that's a, a reason why so many victims protect their marriage, like a vault, like a bank vault, and they never share. And then people, when they finally burst at the seams and reach out for help, then people judge them and say, well, I don't see any earlier police reports. I don't, I didn't ever hear you complain about this before. I've never seen that. And they discredit the victim, even though it is an empath's um, desire to protect the marriage and to protect their spouse. I remember when I first confided about my abuse, I went to people who I knew loved both me and my spouse, but that was a big mistake because Mm. um, they ended up doubly abusing me, not believing what I said because they had never seen him in that light. And so, right. Right. Um, yeah. It victims need to be careful who they confide in. Yes. You know, the courts, the courts do this uh, form of double abuse. And I know you and I are going to have a whole podcast episode. We're going to talk about double abuse, but um because, but it is right. If when you go, when you, when you finally are done and you expose it then, but you don't have years worth of, um, evidence to prove and support and all of that. I actually posted on Instagram this morning about this. Um, there's a, 
a great uh, meme from Jess Taylor uh, or a quote from Jess Taylor, where she says, woman, I was abused by him. World, going to need some receipts, your phone, DNA, videos, text, le- texts, letters, your entire medical history, statements from everyone who knows you, and a photocopy of your foot. Man, she's lying. World, we believe you. Yeah. Right? Wow. Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this, is, this is patriarchy. Yes. And I'll even, um, we have a fourth pillar that we talk about once you have confided in others. And that's when um, there's cultural. So let's say you're part of the same culture or there's prejudicial or hierarchical preferential treatment that others give to the abuser. It's so it's when others give this preferential treatment to the guilty party because of their shared social viewpoints, like, you know, well, I'm a Democrat, he's a Democrat, so he can't be being that way or vice versa. Um, Or um, he's in my social circle and I've never seen that. And I I refuse to believe that about this person. So it's, or they're in a leadership or powerful position. So they get institutional support. They don't believe that they're guilty of sexual harassment or whatever. He's a priest. Yes. He's a priest. He couldn't possibly have been a sexual abuser or a pedophile. And when this happens, these other voices, this noise and these beliefs by others really traumatizes the Mm -hmm. victim because now they're being classified as a liar or oversensitive or exaggerating or um, disparaging their spouse, things of that nature. And it can just be an overwhelmingly traumatic experience for victims to go through. In fact, Many will say that it was that double abuse that was more harmful to them, more traumatic than the original abuse. Yes, for sure. One of the reasons I wanted to do this episode was because I get so many questions about this, right? What's the difference? What's the difference between an abuser, a narcissist, a sociopath, right? And what you're saying, what we're saying is it's important to understand the mindset of an abuser. It's important to understand where they're coming from to a degree, because sometimes it can um, help you identify the ability to change. At the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter, right? What the label is or does it? One caveat I would say, um, because it can happen in my marriage, we were able to save our marriage after a three-year separation where he did intense work and the type of work that the abuser needs to do. And this is not couples therapy. I just want to clarify that. Um, I worked on my trauma and I had no anticipation or expectation that we were going to reconcile. I just knew I needed to remove myself from the toxicity because my body was falling apart. I was becoming ill and whatnot, but the, the, the tactic or the, um, the modality for treating somebody who's abusive is to unpack those faulty belief systems. It's to address their faulty thinking, not their feelings, because their feelings are distorted. Their thinking is distorted too, but their thinking drives their feelings. And so it's it's in so many books that, and it's my personal experience that you need to confront their faulty beliefs, their image management, their sense of entitlement, those things need to be confronted. And the only feelings that should enter the scene at that point in therapy is 
talking about how it would make the victim feel these behaviors. Um, and a lot of therapists are ill-equipped and don't, they, they just spend way too much time entertaining the abuser's feelings. And that's the exact opposite thing that needs to be taking place. In fact, to entertain the abuser's feelings is more traumatic for the victim because now there again, their feelings are being pushed aside. And now the focus is on making the abuser feel well. It's really a destructive um, combination yeah. of, of a clinical approach. Yeah, it's it's really and it's and it's and it's complex complex, right? Because when somebody and I uh confided in this uh this uh in you yes in you about this yesterday, that there's someone in my life who is now really confronting their abuse and recognizing it, right? And wait, so you mean the per the abuser person is recognizing that they're abusive. Yes, that's right. And the feelings of horror and shame and guilt and like absolute terror of what they have done and the number of people they've hurt over the last 35 years of this you know belief system and and basically being a perpetrator like the the he's having all of these feelings but also at the same time he's like i don't want to make it about me but also like oh my god <laughs> you know yeah. the, sh- the the shame and the horror and the impact on so many people um including children and all of it right and so but also like it's not about me but also like oh my god <laughs> and that's, that's actually and hard that's, that's a great opportunity for a, a therapist to say well you're experiencing healthy guilt this is an appropriate feeling. These are appropriate feelings that you should have, but let's talk about what your thoughts are and why you felt entitled to behave this way. What was driving that? And it's, it, there absolutely will be this faulty belief system, entitlement and image management in the core. Uh, I mean, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, I mean, and I guess that's sort of one of the things like how, you know, we hear all the time. I'm sure you hear it too. How do I know he's, you know, he's, if he's changing or he promised um, or they promised, they said that, you know, that they were never going to do this again. And they suddenly, they realize they see the light, right? Usually when we are going to leave, how do we know when it's real or when it's another tactic? Well, um, I think it's really important. You've mentioned this before that um, victims are really in touch with their feelings. How do they feel? And so often victims, they, they just minimize their needs to being, if you could just meet this one little need I have, I'll be happy. But that yeah. isn't really authentic. They need to become yeah. more empowered and really set boundaries, really um, become in tune with their thoughts and their feelings. And so many victims have been shut down that that takes effort to, um, to get to know yourself. And that's right. It's so hard. And when you have been minimized and you've been shut down systematically by the abuser for however many years, it, it becomes, it's dangerous to know your feelings. It's scary to know your feelings. And then, so part of your trauma is shutting them out. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so that's sort of why, I mean, what I usually say to people in this situation, and I think, you know, you are a testament to this, a living testament to this, that the only way for you to know really is, is to go, right? Is to remove yourself from the situation. And if they continue to do the work and they're really doing the work and they're showing up as a different person over time. Yes, I, that's the key. That's the key. I'm glad you said that. Yes, because anyone can do that for a couple of weeks. Yes, it, there needs to be long-standing evidence of change. Now they're going to have setbacks. Yep. Um, but overall, they will own those setbacks. They right. will. They will take responsibility for those things. If they're not taking responsibility, and when I say take responsibility, I mean it's one thing to own it, but then you have to make a sincere apology with reparations to correct whatever they did. So if they gossiped about you or slandered you to other people, they need to go back to those other people and say, what I said was not true. I was protecting myself. But what's true is that I've been treating her this way and she's been compassionately standing by me. You know, they need to correct it. If you do something that damages property or whatever, we Obviously, you need to correct that. They need to immediately fix what they damage. And the same is true uh, when there's an emotionally abusive tactic. They need to make reparations so that the victim actually is not just dismissed with a topical apology, but experiences the support that should follow such a breach or a violation. Right, which, which flies in the face of image management. It's allowing their image to be tarnished. That's right. And that's really challenging for them, but it's necessary. They need to give that up or they will not change. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The person I was um, talking about earlier has, um, you know, is, is really, really struggling with this. Right. And like, and having really hard, difficult conversations with people and being really honest and, and it's, and it's probably the hardest part. And we were talking about how, because he is in a 12 step program for this, that they're having this conversation before like the ninth step, which is the amend step. Right. So like, it's, it's all kind of out of whack, Yeah, but he still has to do it. Yes. He still has to do it. To do um, steps. And it's, and it's ugly and it's, and it's, it's uncomfortable and it's messy as all hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's going to different grocery stores cause he doesn't want to bump into people he knows cause he's got so much shame, you know, but. But that'll on. serve, that'll serve him well over time. If he stays the course. I know. I know. I'm praying, praying. Yeah. So let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit more about us, right? Because we always got, you know, and this is the thing. I, I think that there's such a difficult balance for victims because we spend so much time with a magnifying glass trying to understand the abuser, which I think is important to the degree that we can r- then recognize abuse, right? So that we actually understand what it is that they're doing and whether there's a hope for change or all of those things. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we also then have to turn that around and look at ourselves 
and our trauma and our healing and how disconnected we've become or isolated or all of those things. And again, right. How does he make me feel? How does this person make me feel? That's really hard to do when you're in the midst of repeated trauma, repeated abuse. I mean, it's you, you mentioned that you have to leave, right? Well, there's a, um, a saying out there that says that abusers have to experience a breakdown before they can experience a breakthrough. And so often, so what that means is that the victim needs to set the boundary, um, but follow it through. They just set a boundary and they don't follow it through with ultimatums, with consequences. They're just complaining. And that's, that's not helpful for anyone. So the, the victim has to have the courage to be willing to follow through with consequences. And usually that means a separation and a separation will be the great test as to whether he's willing to seek the right help that is needed and give her the time that she needs to heal, to create a more Zen environment for herself so she can self-examine her own areas where she's denied herself in the past and get in touch with the boundaries that she really needs to have in place in order to feel safe. Yep. That's right. And you know, there's a, there's a great saying, another saying out there that says, don't make threats. You don't intend to carry out, Mm -hmm. right? Because you make the threat and then they're like, Oh, okay. 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 I promise I won't do it. And then it's like, well, then there's no third, it's an empty threat and they know it. And the only way that anyone hits their bottom is when we stop cushioning it for them, allowing them to experience the consequence. And that's really scary because the victim feels like if we allow them to experience the consequence, they might abandon me or Mm -hmm. they might get another girlfriend or all these things. But that's why it's so important for victims to really work on changing their own belief system as well about themselves. They, they, they say, I'm not lovable or um, something must be inherently wrong with me. Um, I must not be a good communicator in the relationship. And they really believe these um, things about themselves when they need to be standing in front of the mirror, speaking affirmations to themselves. I am lovable. I am kind. I am worthy really changing the way they think about themselves to prepare themselves to be able to set and carry through with boundaries and consequences. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is this like, well, you know, we're just, we just have trouble communicating. Abuse is not a communication issue. That's right. It's not, it's not, it's not a relationship problem. It's, oh, it's, I, it's I, an abuser problem. <laughs> I was just talking to somebody who does, um, annulments. He's an attorney who um, manages annulments through the Catholic church. And I said, what have you found is the most common problem in these marriages that are failing? And he said, communication problems. And I just thought to myself, I didn't say anything in the moment we were out to dinner, but I just thought to myself, oh gosh, you know, yep, no, it's not. (laughs) That's really not the issue. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens like this is, and this is why we don't go to therapy with abusers, right? Because most therapists will work on communication. 
if they're not skilled in recognizing and understanding these dynamics. That's right. And so then the victim is minimized their, their, what their, their trauma, their experience is reduced. The focus isn't on these abusive behaviors. It's some, it'll somehow place some responsibility on the victim. Well, you react too much or, well, when you do these things, then you're, husband gets triggered and he acts abusively. That is not the kind of advice that should be spoken in front of the abuser and the victim. It empowers the abuser. And now he feels he has the support of the therapist and the victim feels completely annihilated by the therapist, abandoned by the therapist, which is a really traumatic form of double abuse that um, often uh, occurs with couple therapy. Yeah. And we don't, and sometimes we don't we don't know that we feel annihilated right that's and that's part of the i think part of what makes it so hard is that it, you know we're in it to win it like we're in it to solve it and to figure out right and so when they say to us like well it's your communication or you're triggering them or whatever we're like oh okay Right. And we take our homework and we go home and we do the, you know, the, the, the shift in communication and we try to heal their childhood wounds. So they're not abusive or whatever. And then it still doesn't work. And so then we're left feeling like, oh, then I'm still the poor communicator or I'm still right. When it, not, not to mention how weary and exhausted it makes you going through that. Exhausting. I exhausting. I remember being in therapy, we were in therapy for years um, and nobody, nobody identified the abuse. Mm-hmm. That's but I remember I one in particular where I actually, I, I now had become more aware of what was happening. And I would say things like, my, well, my husband would falsely accuse me of some random thing in the therapy session that would hijack the conversation. And I would spend all this time having to defend myself saying that never happened. Why are we talking about this? He falsely accused me of something else in the last session. Why aren't you addressing false accusations? You're digging into the minutia of something that never even occurred or has just a thread of truth and the rest is distorted. Um, It it was so frustrating. Mm, mm. And those, that sort of thing is what will happen over and over again if the therapist hasn't had continuing education units on domestic violence and on emotional abuse. To be clear, this is not something, this is something they spend, I, I mean, I think um, maybe a week or two on in their entire multi-year training. This is not something that a therapist who goes through the basic therapy training comes out with. No, in fact, the last I checked with the Board of Behavioral Science, they got 10 hours of, they were only mandated 10 hours of training on abuse, and they could choose what abuse topic they wanted to study. So you come out as a marriage and family therapist, and you have no, no, I've had therapy, I've interviewed so many therapists, and I've had questions like, well, what is covert emotional abuse? They they just have never heard of it. It's shocking. We have so much work to do. (laughs) It's so exhausting. Policy changes. (laughs) Right. Exactly. We have to get under, you know, and and I love that 
I think that what we're talking about is very similar to something that Lundy Bancroft talks about, which is when he, he talks about the difference between narcissists and abusers and that we have to call out abuse for abuse, because if we call it narcissism, right, if we call all abusers narcissists, then ultimately it, it filters back down to childhood wounding and usually from the mother right? So it's a woman problem. And if we call out abuse for what it is, and we look at, as you've identified these four pillars of abuse, then it's a systemic problem. Then it's society that's on the hook, not women, not mothers, not, you know, abandonment, right? It's actually a systemic issue of entitlement, and patriarchy and all of it. And patriarchy and all of it, right? And then we actually have to address the real issue. So it's no wonder that it is not required in therapy, in therapy training, that like, right? Because it is, again, upholding these systems. Right. No, that's a very good point. Um, And therapists are not really they don't think that they're hired to challenge or confront someone. They join them in whatever their belief system is, whether someone is, um, you know, what, whatever yeah. faith very invested in their faith and the variations within a faith that are super patriarchal and some are more egalitarian mm-hmm. Um they don't challenge those things. They meet them where they are in that. Yeah. Yep. And that's, and that's the work we have to do. Absolutely. Annette, thank you so much for coming back on. Oh, it's so great. Talking more about all these. I know. So good. So good. And we will, we'll do it again. We've got what we have two more episodes planned coming up in the next few months. We've got one on double abuse that we're going to plan. And then what was the other one? I have Um, couple therapy, all the reasons why it doesn't work and to really help you interview a therapist and to identify the, the pitfalls so that you can address those things. Yes. Yes. So excited for those. You guys can find The Mend Project and all of Annette's incredible work at themendproject.com, um, on Instagram at The Mend Project, right? It's yep. and our YouTube channel and our Facebook page. Yes. Oh, yeah. The YouTube channel is great. Um, and you guys have a training coming up, right? Um, starting August 15th. Yeah. Let's talk about that. We have, have, okay. Thank you. We have a training. um, We have two trainings, three trainings actually starting at around the same time. One is for victim survivors where we um, offer a discount because we know that so many victims and survivors are struggling now just being out on their own for the first time, or they don't have access to finances. And then we have, and, and that particular training is in a webinar fashion so they can maintain their anonymity anonymity and not um, engage as much if they're not comfortable, which a lot of victims are not comfortable yet doing that. But our responder training, we cover a lot of the same material, but we're, we're just speaking to these two audiences a little differently. And there it is, um, on lo- we have live Zoom sessions once a week where 
there's lives, there's live sessions once a week for each training, but there's being on zoom for the responders allows a lot more interaction Mm -hmm. um, and breakouts and that sort of thing. And then we have, um, we just finally got approved by the um, American psychological association to offer CE credits for um, professional therapists. And that will also be starting. And that isn't up on our webpage yet, but it will be probably by tomorrow. So that if you want CEs, um, you just click a different link and you'll be part of that program. And I really encourage, it's a seven week training course where it takes about 30 minutes of reading each week, plus the one hour live session. Um, and we do, we do this once a week because it really gives the, um, participants an opportunity to digest the information. We provide a lot of tools and resources to help them retain the information. And I just think it's a a wonderful program to really help you understand how to interface um, with victims, or if you are a victim, how to advocate for yourself, how to really understand and unpack what's happening, how to interface with abusers um, for responders and, and for victims to understand what kind of interfacing their abusive spouse needs um, from others and so much more. It's unpacked yeah. with, well, you went through the course. I did. I did. I still, I'm still a little behind. I have to catch up on it, but yes, I did. Um, and so I, so August 15th is the cohort for um, victims and uh, victims survive different survive. ones that start at the same time. And yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact date that the um, continuing education units program, but it's in August as well. Yeah. And we'll just link all of that in the show notes, but um, I highly recommend for those listening who are victims, if you are listening to this conversation and you are feeling like, oh my gosh, I want to get more information on this. um, I can't recommend uh, the MEND project enough. So thank you so much, Annette. Appreciate you so much. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at The Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.